of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. It's time for another eponymous foods episode. So exciting. I love these. Uh, This one involves two noodle dishes, although one has variations on that, depending where you're at in the world. You might not get it with noodles. Both of them are kind of classic comfort foods that you can easily find nowadays in pre-made frozen versions in most grocery stores. Still going to be more delicious if you make it yourself, though. I think that's a fair thing to say. But both of them actually started out as dishes intended for fancy people. Uh, The first one has a lot of possible people as the namesake, although they are all in the same family. That section is going to be the longest because there's just more info to pick through. The second dish is a case where it's a little more modern and we know exactly who it's named for, but exactly when it was created and by what chef or just person is a little more fuzzy. So it's our oops all noodles episode. (laughs) (laughs) I will say before we start that there are a number of like pre-made packaged things that I will just fight to the death for. (laughs) Oh, I love, I love certain frozen foods, but even so, usually if you make it yourself, it's still going to be that much more delicious. So we're starting with beef stroganoff, which is a relatively simple dish to make. Normally, it's made by sautéing thinly sliced pieces of beef in butter and then adding stock to finish cooking the meat, then adding sour cream and seasoning and serving all of that over a delicious starch. In North America, a lot of the time, that starch is egg noodles. Yeah, we'll talk about some other variations in a bit. Uh, Beef stroganoff really has its roots in fricassee. The term fricassee really just means meat that's stewed in a white sauce or sautéed with butter and then stewed in broth. Gregory Lewis McNamee, writing for Encyclopedia Britannica, notes that stroganoff is a variation of fricassee de boeuf, which is a French standard. Fricassee de boeuf, if you order it in a French restaurant today, will include beef that has been sautéed in butter and then stewed with vegetables and broth. And that's often served over potatoes, although rice or noodles also sometimes make up the starchy base of the dish. So some of the DNA really remains the same between fricassee de boeuf and beef stroganoff, but the differences between the two have become more pronounced. The roots are still absolutely French, although the dish has evolved a little over time, and it kind of lends itself to improvisation, so there are many, many recipes for it floating around now. 
So where did that name come from, though? It's generally agreed upon that this is named for someone in the Stroganov family, but exactly which member of that family is where it becomes tricky. That is in part because we're talking about a family that was essentially a dynasty. The first mention of the family name in the historical record is from Novgorod in the 1400s. And then in the early 16th century, a family member set up a salt mining operation. Forty years later, Grigory Stroganov received a land grant from Tsar Ivan IV. That land was along the Chusovaya and Kama rivers, That would have put it in the area of Perm, a little more than 1,400 kilometers east of Moscow and more than 1,800 kilometers east of St. Petersburg. So this was really not an area that was highly populated or well-developed, and then the Stroganovs built it up. And that buildup included everything from founding towns to developing infrastructure to attracting other residents to mounting an army, and the Stroganovs did all of this. Part of the reason this was possible was because the Tsar had exempted them from two decades of taxes as they developed the area, so all of their family wealth could be folded back into these development projects. They set up a variety of business enterprises as well, including additional salt mines, iron mines, and timber operations. As their towns and business efforts grew in the 16th century, so too did their land grant. In 1568, the Tsar expanded their holdings. For context for North American listeners, this is kind of similar to the way westward expansion happened under the Homestead Act, with pioneers willing to set up new towns and settlements in exchange for claims on that land. Russia also had indigenous populations that were in these areas, and new population that grew through the Stroganov settlement efforts was often in conflict with those indigenous populations. Through assisting the Russian government with expeditions, cozying up to the Tsar, and the resulting additional land grants, the Stroganov family gained a foothold in Siberia as well. And this was a bold and strategic accomplishment that made the Stroganovs basically the power in Siberia. And it also enabled them to continue to grow their various industries of salt and iron mining, fur trading, and lumber with no competition. At the end of the 16th century and the beginning of the 17th, Russia went through a huge upheaval known as the Time of Troubles. That could easily be a whole episode all on its own, but the most pertinent aspect talking about the Stroganov family is that it led to the end of the Rurik dynasty and the beginning of Romanov rule. During this transition, the Stroganovs backed the Romanovs, and when Mikhail Romanov became czar in 1613, They were in a position to gain a great deal from this alliance. The Stroganovs had accumulated enough wealth that they were able to essentially bankroll the launch of the Romanov dynasty. They literally loaned the new dynasty money to shore up the treasury. That made them incredibly powerful. They gained a level of near-untouchable status within Russia. They did not answer to any governing authority except Tsar Romanov himself. The family continued to prosper financially, but dwindled in number. By the 1680s, there was only one inheritor when Dmitry Andreevich Stroganov died, and that was his son, Grigory Dmitrievich Stroganov. So all of that land and all of that power basically passed to one man. 
Like his predecessors, he backed the Romanov family, and he allied himself closely with Peter I, who you may also see mentioned as Peter the Great. Peter had become czar six years before Grigory inherited the family fortune. When he was in control of the Stroganov wealth, Grigory used it to bolster Peter I's military, particularly the navy. This further cemented the family's value to the Romanovs, and over the next 100 years, the titles held by Stroganovs among the Russian nobility climbed higher and higher in rank. This continued all the way up until the October Revolution in 1917, the Stroganov family was anti-Bolshevik and fought the Bolsheviks before leaving the country. We'll talk more about what happened post-1917 from a food standpoint in just a moment. At this point, Beef Stroganov already existed and it had taken on a life of its own. But for the Stroganov family, it meant that all the wealth and property and art they had accumulated and had to leave behind became property of the state. The Stroganov Palace in St. Petersburg became national property and was incorporated into the Russian Museum in 1990. Over the years, a lot of the art collection and personal effects from the family were auctioned off. There are, as we mentioned earlier, several different theories about the origin of Beef Stroganov, which generally uses the spelling with two Fs at the end instead of the V. You might see it with a V, but usually it's the Fs. All of these versions have a French cook or chef in the mix. The Romanov family really embraced European culture, and the Stroganovs followed suit. So it makes sense that though there are different locations to the various origins, it is always from a kitchen run by a French chef. One of the most popular versions of this story involves a member of the family named Pavel Alexandrovich Stroganov. Pavel was born June 18, 1774, in Paris, and that was simply because at that point, the Stroganovs were living in the court of the newly crowned King Louis XVI. Pavel served in the military, and then as a diplomat, he was really accustomed to spending a lot of time in Europe, and he was such a regular at the French royal court that previous podcast subject Vigée Lebrun painted his portrait. Pavel Alexandrovich Stroganov was allegedly visiting France when a chef decided to create a special dish just for him. Or maybe he had hired a French chef to cook for him at home. There are, within this story, even different versions of what that dish actually was. So if you read the Encyclopedia Britannica entry on beef stroganoff, it says the original one used mustard instead of sour cream. But a 1999 book published by the Russian Information Service and written by Dara Goldstein states that sour cream was added to a mustard sauce to create the new and unique dish that would be fit for a Russian diplomat. Pavel, unfortunately, would not have gotten to enjoy this dish for terribly long, as he died of consumption quite young at the age of 43. At the time, he was at sea, bound for Copenhagen. Coming up, we will talk about another Stroganov who might be the inspiration for this entree. But first, we will pause for a sponsor break. Another Stroganov who is also cited as the dish's inspiration came right after Pavel, and that is Alexander Grigorievich Stroganov, who was born in 1795 and served as Russia's Minister of the Interior before becoming Governor General of Novorossiya, an area that's part of modern-day Ukraine. 
Alexander lived in Odessa, and in that city, he was known almost as much for his love of sharing food as he was for his statesmanship. He had this practice that I really love, which is that anyone was allowed to have dinner at his open table, and the meals served there were prepared by French chefs and cooks. And this version of the origin story suggests that one of the French kitchen staff developed the beef stroganoff recipe just because it was easy to make in large batches, which was perfect when a surprise number of dinner guests shows up. It's also easy to plate for large gatherings, since the beef is thinly sliced as cooked in the sauce, doesn't involve a full cut of meat, it's really easy to just ladle onto dishes as much as anybody needs. But wait, there is still another story. Grigory Alexandrovich Stroganov was a contemporary of Alexander Grigorievich. Grigory was born in 1770, and he was also known for his love of food. So his chef is also credited with creating beef stroganoff, and rumors were that it was a matter of practicality. While Alexander's chefs are said to have created this dish to serve very large parties, Grigory's chef was catering, according to legend, expressly to his employer, because as Grigory aged, he lost his teeth. This is allegedly why his chef started cutting the meat into very thin strips and then stewing them in a sauce to make them really tender. Yet another origin story is that Chef Charles Briere created the dish while he was working in St. Petersburg, and he actually claimed this in his lifetime. He said that he created it in 1891 and that he named it for the Stroganov family. And because it was his original creation, he entered it into a culinary competition in St. Petersburg and won. He also submitted it to the French magazine L'Art Culinaire as his original creation. But this Briere claim has a pretty serious flaw. A cookbook called A Gift to Young Housewives was written in 1871. And in it is a recipe that translates as beef stroganoff with mustard, That sauce included mustard, sour cream, and beef broth. That cookbook post-dates Pavel Alexandrovich Stroganov, and it came out while Alexander Grigorievich Stroganov was still alive. He would have been 76 at the time. So this kind of supports either the Pavel or the Alexander origin. It's kind of a bummer that the cooks or the chefs that may have created this in either of those cases don't have names included in any of the sources that we saw. Yeah, but we know it existed before Briere claimed that he did it. Uh, Another cookbook shifted the beef stroganoff story once again. This one, titled Practical Guide to the Basics of Culinary Arts, was written in 1912 by Pelagia Alexandrova Ignatieva. This is where mushrooms got added to the stroganoff recipe. Pelagia also added tomato sauce to the mix and spread her version of the dish on top of potato straws. Those are crispy shoestring potatoes instead of noodles or some softer starch. This is allegedly, I cannot speak from experience, how you will most often see it served in Russia today. This sounds delicious to me. (laughs) I love some. I love some potato straws. Pavel and Olga Sutkin, writing for the Moscow Times in 2022, hunted through old cookbooks looking for some kind of precursor that might put the origin of beef stroganoff even earlier than any of these accounts. 
they found a publication called Chef's Calendar from 1808 that had a recipe called mince, which instructed the cook to finely chop some beef, fry it in butter, and then add broth, seasoning, vinegar, and sour cream. Another, called Klops, is made with tenderized cuts of beef that are sautéed with onions and served with sour cream or the fond from the skillet. The Sjutkins mentioned that while these are not stroganoff, they do represent an existing tradition of some similar dishes that stroganoff may have evolved from. It's really highly probable that some version of the dish was around for a long time and was taught through oral tradition from generation to generation. And while we have covered ancient cookbooks on the show before, in Russia and really a lot of parts of the world, cookbooks didn't have a huge presence until the second half of the 19th century. That's just because printing got cheaper and cheaper and people were able to turn them out, and that's when we start seeing stroganoff recipes show up. It was at this point that the dish expanded in recognition beyond the stroganoff family and became popular as a dish throughout Russia. Because it was named after an important and long-standing family in the country, it also became viewed as an iconic example of Russian cuisine. We mentioned a few moments ago that the October Revolution, which resulted in the Bolsheviks seizing power, was part of Beef Stroganoff's story. When the revolution happened and families who had been loyal to Tsar Nicholas II fled or were exiled, they went in two directions, to Europe, particularly Paris, and to China. And with them, of course, went their favorite recipes. As a result, beef stroganoff has the distinction of being popular in China up until today, although the version that's made there often reverts back to a mustard sauce instead of including sour cream, and it's usually served over rice. In Europe, the creamy, rich texture of the dish with sour cream became really popular, and variations made with heavy cream also emerged. I will take all of them, thank you. Uh, From there, as both home cooks and restaurants recognized how simple and cost-effective and delicious this dish is to make, it ballooned in popularity. In the U.S., it's become a standard in cookbooks, in restaurants, and even, as we said, frozen, ready-to-heat dinners, although it is usually served over egg noodles in North America rather than those potato straws or rice. And the dish got to the U.S. through two paths. One was European immigrants, but the other was due to U.S. military deployments during World War II. Men who were sent to the Pacific Theater encountered the version that had been popularized in China and then spread to surrounding countries. And some of these versions from Asia were not only served over rice, but also incorporated other flavors associated with various Asian cuisine, like soy sauce or fish sauce that was added to the creamy base. So by the time servicemen returned home from the war, they had a lot of pretty varied ideas of what beef stroganoff was, and it came right with them. To be clear, though, it had hit U.S. tables well before World War II, although it was treated with kind of a degree of fascination for having come from afar. An article in the Akron Beacon Journal from May 14, 1934, that talked about the dish, ran under the headline, quote, Peasants of Russia Thrive on Monotonous, Though Well-Balanced Diet, says editor. The home economics editor referenced there was Glenna H. Snow, who had once seen a lecture that said that Russians existed almost exclusively on, quote, cabbage, rye or black bread, coffee, and occasionally a cucumber for a change in diet. 
We know that they also have potatoes and do have a great deal of soup. Obviously, Snow had some interesting and pretty unrealistic ideas about what a balanced diet is and what the word thriving means, I would say. Also, having had as a source a lecture heard some time ago, it's a little questionable. Uh, The rest of this write-up is about a beef stroganoff recipe that won Miss Clora H. Derling of Wadsworth, Ohio, a dollar from the paper, That includes in the ingredients beef, thick sour cream, a grated onion, mustard, salt, pepper, butter for frying, and ketchup. Womp womp is how I felt reading that recipe. That entire write-up, I was like, this so exemplifies, like, the concept of U.S. residents perceiving others in ways that are at kindest quaint and kind of conceited. Um... Uh, by which I mean from a conceited standpoint. Uh, And while opinions may be mixed about that ketchup situation, listen, I'm shaking my head, really that level of variability is part of the dish's long-term success. It's a recipe that's taught in its classic version in cooking schools with beef, mushrooms, onions, sour cream, etc., But it's also a recipe that invites improvisation because it is so simple. You don't have to be a good cook. If you don't have beef but you need to use some pork that you have in the fridge, use that instead. Cooks can add wine, mustard, or tomato if they wish or borrow from those Asian styles and use soy or fish sauce. You can cut the beef into petals or strips. You can serve it over rice, noodles, or potatoes. You can see how this would be also a good way to use leftovers to make something new. But all of it goes back to the Stroganoff family and their love of French food. The next food that we're going to talk about, also incorporating noodles, is a favorite of Holly's, and it's Tetrazzini. It's named for Luisa Tetrazzini, who was a famous singer in the early 20th century, who also sounds like a very fun person. Luisa was born on June 29th, 1871 in Florence, Italy, and she started singing at the age of three, training alongside her sister Eva. When Luisa was still a teenager, she married a man named Giuseppe Scalaberni, and he managed the Pagliano building, which included a theater, and that theater was mounting a production of the opera La Fricana in the early 1890s. Luisa observed the rehearsals while her husband worked, and she became so familiar with the opera that it changed her life. When the soprano, who was cast in the lead role, fell ill before opening and was unable to perform... Luisa, who knew the entire opera by heart, stepped in. Her unusual debut was greeted with a standing ovation, and her career as a professional singer took off from there. She had been so confident and so poised in her debut performance that a lot of audience members believed that the claim that she had never sung before a large crowd before must have been some sort of publicity stunt. Luisa's early professional bookings were in Rome and then touring companies that traveled to Russia, Mexico, and South America. She had a lot of buzz internationally. By the early 1900s, there were often articles in California newspapers in particular that speculated on when this famed diva might finally perform in the United States. She finally did so in 1904 in San Francisco. 
Louisa was a confident woman. She did not let anyone boss her around. And when she negotiated contracts, she only agreed to terms that she wanted. She also got into a number of legal battles on matters of business. For example, when negotiating a year-long engagement at the Metropolitan Opera in New York, the contract included language that would restrict her from performing in other cities. There were some legal issues with that contract. She didn't like that clause. And it seems that when she did not receive a deposit on the contract at the time she expected, she just started setting out to book other dates. But this caused trouble with Oscar Hammerstein, who had been her manager. He made a statement to the press that said, quote, when I sold out my interest to the Metropolitan Opera House, a certain clause stated that such singers as did not wish to be transferred I would take care of in some manner. Madame Tetrazzini was one of these. I wrote her that since she did not want to go to the Metropolitan, I still regarded my contract as good and would send her on a concert tour this coming season. Hammerstein said that he had given her an advance and also sent her money for travel so that she could come to him and they could work out a plan, but that she never showed. Louisa said that she had no contract with Hammerstein and that she could book engagements wherever she wanted and famously stated, quote, I will sing in San Francisco if I have to sing there in the streets, for I know the streets of San Francisco are free. When this case was finally settled, it was Tetrazzini who came out on top, and to celebrate, she immediately booked a street performance in San Francisco. She was really not considered to be a good actress, but her singing was so expressive that it filled the gap. She once said, quote, I have been successful because I have put feeling, experience, dramatic power, and acting into my voice. I am not wooden. I phrase words as I sing them. I attune myself to the part. I make every word, every act, every motion count. That is the reason of my success. Tetrazzini's heyday as a performer was really before World War I. She was estimated by the New York Times when she died to have earned $5 million in her career, an enormous sum for the time. She had an ongoing feud with Dame Nellie Melba, who we've talked about on the show before and has an eponymous food of her own, but a very close friendship with Enrico Caruso and other singers of the day. She also married three times in her life, and she had a great number of other romantic partners. In short, Luisa Tetrazzini lived life to the fullest. She often described her life as a, quote, path of roses, and her passion for living carried right on through to food. As she aged, she put on weight, and when people questioned whether she should change her diet, she insisted that she thrived on a rich diet and felt it gave her the strength she needed to perform, and that she'd rather have that than have a smaller figure. With all that in mind, it makes sense that the entree that bears her name would wind up being a rich one. We're going to talk more about that rich entree after we hear from the sponsors that keep Stuff You Missed in History class going. If you have never had Tetrazzini, it is another easy-to-make comfort food. It's really a casserole. Jessica Webster, writing for the Ann Arbor News in 2010, described it perfectly. Quote, This recipe seems to have a fairly flexible set of ingredients, but most iterations include pasta, a cream sauce, white wine, vegetables, and some form of non-red meat that usually lends the dish the first part of its name. When it's all said and done, it tastes kind of like an Italian chicken pot pie. From California. 
In contrast to the stroganoff story, where we know a French chef created it but aren't quite sure which member of the family it was named for, we know that Luisa Tetrazzini is the inspiration for the chicken Tetrazzini dish. We just don't know when or where, although it was in the United States, and it's possible that the inventor was the singer herself. Even what was in the original version is debated. Sam Sifton, writing about Tetrazzini for the New York Times in 2016, listed the original ingredients as, quote, spaghetti, heavy cream, chicken, mushrooms, and parmesan, served with two classic French sauces, chicken velouté and hollandaise. Velouté is a sauce made with a roux of melted butter and flour with poultry stock added to it. Almost 40 years after Luisa Tetrazzini's death, though, writer Douglas Welch wrote an account of the dish's creation in his column, which was called Squirrel Cage. And that account, which was published in May 1967, included Welch reminiscing about meeting the singer as a child and the story he learned growing up of how the rich entree came about. Welch places the invention in Boston at a restaurant called Bovar's. He wrote, quote, The way I heard the story is that one night after the opera, she walked into Bovar's and said she wanted something different. She wondered if they had some sliced cold roast chicken that they could heat up along with spaghetti and mushrooms and butter and sherry and cheddar cheese and a little white sauce. So this is obviously, if you know Tetrazzini, a shocking account. Cheddar cheese! Uh, that's not usually in there. <laughs> Welch relays this story as part of a larger narrative about getting into an argument with his neighbors over telling them that chicken tetrazzini was not Italian and also that it had cheddar cheese and not Parmesan or Romano cheese. One article in Savour mentions that Auguste Scoffier, whose name you may recognize as a previous podcast subject, is the one who invented it. And his life and tetrazzini's did overlap. He lived from 1846 to 1935, but... Escoffier worked in Europe, and this dish has always been cited as having been invented for the singer while she was touring the United States. It's possible that the attribution is due to one element of the dish, that velouté sauce, which was one of the five French mother sauces that Escoffier touted as essential for any cook to be able to create a myriad of recipes. Another often cited originator is Chef Ernest Arbogast, who worked at San Francisco's Palace Hotel in the early 1900s. This version states that he created it for her when she was singing in San Francisco and is included in Charles Nelson Gaddy's biography of Luisa Tetrazzini, which is titled Luisa Tetrazzini, the Florentine Nightingale. The biography account covers Luisa's happy 1910 return to perform in San Francisco, a city that she loved and which clearly loved her back. She was, on that visit, presented with a skating rink named in her honor and, quote, at the Palace Hotel where Tetrazzini was going to stay again, its resourceful manager, Colonel John C. Kirkpatrick, greeted her with the news that their renowned chef, Ernest Arbogast, had created a new dish in her honor, chicken Tetrazzini, which would be served for the first time that evening. This all took place, according to that biography, in December of 1910. That was when she staged her famous street performance after her legal battle with the Met and with Hammerstein. But that does not line up with other records. The casserole's first known mention in print was in Good Housekeeping in 1908. It describes the dish we'd all recognize as chicken tetrazzini and says that it was invented in New York. Quote, 
At the restaurant on 42nd Street, they serve a good and easy entree or main course. It is named after the famous singer. That restaurant is believed to have been the one in the Knickerbocker Hotel. The first instance we found for chicken tetrazzini in the U.S. in a paper was in the autumn of 1909. Over the course of October to December of that year, a full year before Arbogast allegedly invented it, it suddenly popped up in a lot of papers. While Arbogast couldn't have invented it that year, it's possible that he did invent it earlier, and there's just some confusion on the date. In the 2013 book, San Francisco, A Food Biography, written by Erica J. Peters, March 6, 1905, is listed as the possible night of creation at the Palm Court restaurant in the hotel. Regardless, it is clear that the recipe was created sometime in the early 1900s and spread quite rapidly during Luisa Tetrazzini's lifetime. At this point, there are so many different versions of the recipe, which also lends itself nicely to remaking leftovers into something new, that now there isn't any one definitive version that anyone goes, this is real Tetrazzini, except for that cheddar cheese thing. We'll finish with a throwback to another popular podcast subject. In 1965, Mary and Vincent Price included a Tetrazzini recipe in their cookbook, A Treasury of Great Recipes, with the fancier name of Emulse of Chicken Tetrazzini au Gratin. And then in parentheses, charmingly, chicken and spaghetti casserole. The Prices used a recipe from Sardi's, the famed restaurant in the New York Theater District, Vincent Price, per his own account, fell in love with the dish when he was appearing in Victoria Regina at the Broadhurst Theater in the 1930s. He said he loved Sardis so much, he was a three times a week regular, so he probably had their Tetrazzini a lot. The version in the cookbook uses what Price calls supreme sauce. It's the velouté, but with cream added. Yum. Yeah, I I love that we get to include the prices a little bit. Also, what's interesting here is that uh, emulsé just means really thinly cut strips of meat. So it kind of links it right back to stroganoff, which also has thinly cut strips of meat. Um, But those are our our noodle dishes for eponymous foods. Um, I also have a listener mail uh, this is from our listener, Melanie, who has a PhD in Stuff You Missed in History class, which means she has listened to everything. Uh, Melanie writes, Hello, ladies. Last week, I completed listening to every back episode of your podcast. I love learning about history, especially the things no one knows about. My favorite episodes are medical history, so now I've also started on Sawbones back episodes as well. You're in for a treat. Those are great. I listened to your episodes at 1.5 speed, and like others have said, your voices sound so slow now. (laughs) Sorry. I bet I sound terribly cackly at 1.5. I listened on my way to and from work as a researcher. After I found a puppy on the side of the road while driving to work about six weeks ago, I also started listening while walking her. Your podcast has given me several ideas for my dissertation as I work on my PhD in nursing research. I hope to have my second PhD by the end of the year. I'm very grateful to both of you for your careful research and balanced representation of history. I am especially glad that those whose contributions to society have been ignored before are being recognized now. I believe Tracy once said that the reason you end up covering so many LGBTQ plus and women in history is because those are the ones whose work society has missed. I recently listened to a lecture funded by the NIH in which the speaker made the comment that before Florence Nightingale, women didn't do research. 
There is kind what? of an ang- there's an angry face in the email here. Uh, sounds like there is still more missed history to cover, so I'll keep listening and recommending your podcast. Maybe you could do an episode about unrecognized female researchers prior to flow. I'm attaching my tax of pet pictures. Our seven rescue cats and one rescue puppy keep us awfully busy giving love. Um, this puppy is so cute. Thank you for scooping her up and, and rescuing her. And all of these baby kitties who look like an assortment of trouble and delight. There's one picture of a black cat with the fangiest fangs I've maybe ever seen. Oh, yay. And I want to kiss it so bad. Uh, Melanie, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, every once in a while, I'll come across a similar statement that someone makes where it's like, no one ever did this before this person. And I'm like, that's demonstrably untrue. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I was at a museum one time that said as part of a display that women weren't active in fandom until Star Trek. And I was like, I'm going to... Oh, my goodness. I'm going to punch a hole in this. I did not punch a hole in it, obviously. I did, though, complain to the museum. (laughs) (laughs) Which, we've talked about my rule of, like, not correcting things unless they're either, like, harmful or embarrassing. And I was like, I feel like this is kind of both. Yes. Yeah. Uh, And, again, demonstrably untrue. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. You can also find us on social media as Missed in History. And if you haven't subscribed yet and you want to get your PhD, that's a great way to make it easy. You can do that on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 